Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Cuba, America, and the road to normalization. So, Richard, for the past few months, we've been witnessing this um, sort of early thawing in U.S.-Cuban relations. You had President Obama back in December uh, announced that we were going to start moving in that direction. More recently, you had a very symbolic moment at the Summit of the Americas with the president and Raul Castro shaking hands, pointing towards this new future between the two countries. So let me start here, sort of on the principles level. One of the central facets of our relationship with Havana, going back to really about 1959, but it became official in 1962, has been our economic embargo on the country. And, and Richard, a lot of your fellow libertarians categorically oppose that kind of restriction of trade as a foreign policy tool. Uh, do you share that conviction in general? Do you share it here? Well, I think that categorical is much too strong a term. Uh, there are certain cases where embargo is appropriate. The obvious cases are war. Uh, in cases in which there's serious domestic violence, if it's an effort to try and knock out the local government, um, you could see it as having some plausibility. The difficulty, of course, with all embargoes is you hit the innocent along with the guilty. And so it's not at all clear that the lion's share of the suffering will be uh, borne by the malefactors. It may be borne by innocent people. I regard those as extremely difficult judgments to start making efforts on. And in the Cuban case, I think early on, there were mass slaughters by Castro. I remember as a 16-year-old, 15-year-old, uh, Batista's thrown out, and at least for a week, people started to celebrate the removal of a dictatorship. Within 10 days, I think it became quite clear that this was not going to be the picnic that we had hoped for, and that Castro was not a liberator as much as he was a tyrant bent on revenge and killing many of the people who were in opposition to him. Uh, when one saw the rate of death and the mass exoduses that took place and the suppression of civil liberties, I mean, this guy was bad news all the way around. I think it took Eisenhower completely by surprise. And by April of 1961, Kennedy launched this ill-conceived Bay of Pigs, which only fortified the Castro position because he violated the fundamental norm of warfare. If you're going to attack, either you win or you stay out. And what he did is he dribbled troops in, refused to give any serious support to these guys. They get slaughtered and all of a sudden uh, – Castro is now a hero to the socialist world. At this particular point, you can understand why there would be a boycott, uh, but that was then. There were many terrible things that happened in Cuba in the interim, uh, but somewhere around three to five years ago, it seems pretty clear that Fidel Castro was no longer an active player. His brother, who is no saint, uh, now takes over in one of these sort of clan uh, transfers of power. He's an old man too. Uh, my own sense about it is times have changed, and I think it's time for a fresh look at the policy, and my guess is that the case for sanctions, which generally is an uphill battle, uh, can no longer be won. On the that's sort of roughly in line with the argument that the White House has made, and a lot of President Obama supporters have made. The other side of the coin that you hear sometimes, there's a couple of arguments, but one of them is that you have people who point to these long-standing and ongoing abuses of human rights in, in Cuba. This, is, this has been an ongoing debate in American foreign policy for a long time. It's animated a lot of how we talk about the Middle East in the years since 9-11. How much do you have to weigh that in, Richard? How much of a factor should internal human rights issues be when America is trying to define its 
posture vis-a-vis other nations? Well, I think it's always a very important issue. And I mean, you know, there are all sorts of attacks, for example, on Tim Cook and Apple for selling um, their kinds of wares in companies, countries like Iran, where there's complete intolerance of homosexuals and a complete abuse of women in many kinds of areas. Uh, But this is not a distinctive Cuban question. If the issue is whether or not Cuba in this regard is worse than any other Latin American republic or any other Middle Eastern republic or any other repressive nation, My guess is they're still pretty high on that list, but there are a lot of guys who have outstripped them, and that would be the current situation. If you're actually looking for sort of the trend, I think in effect that with the passing of our friend Raul Castro, there will be a fairly strong movement towards democratic rule in Cuba. One has to think, for example, the comparison with North Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh dies. It's not as though the place becomes a paradise of political purity, uh, but it is quite clear that we have extensive normalization of relations with Vietnam today. Uh, This is 1965 is when that war started in earnest, 1964. Um, uh, I think, in fact, that you know, if we can do it in North Vietnam, I think we probably should do it here. And then when we re-examine the sanctions and human rights issues, I don't think we should treat Cuba as being subject to special treatment. There are a lot of other places. Right now, if I had to direct my fire, I would be much more concerned with the human rights abuses that take place in a place like Venezuela uh, than I am with respect to Cuba. I'm always unhappy about the situation in um, Argentina. Ecuador seems to be a serious problem. Spot Bolivia isn't so hot if you're starting to look at it. Um, So, you know, there are a lot of places in Latin America which I think are actually far worse than the Cuban situation is, and I think the trend line in Cuba is probably favorable, and one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, is the liberalization of sanctions and the return of tourist craze and ordinary interactions that you're going to have going to actually speed the process of reconciliation and liberalization up? My guess at the present is yes, and you can make that judgment today because it's one if it turns out to be wrong, you could reverse tomorrow. Well, because that is that is the other counter-argument that I was going to bring up is people will say that you open this up, you bring up all this – bring in all this economic activity and it's inevitably going to be captured by sort of the ruling classes in Cuba and it's just going to – if anything, may sort of subsidize them in a way so that they, they slide out of power uh, at a slower rate than they would have otherwise. How, how do you respond to those arguments? Well, I mean, first of all, they may slide out of power at a faster rate if they could keep their money and not have to take the precarious risk of being shot or otherwise deposed in some kind of a criminal trial. So I don't know what it does. Uh, but if you think about the corporate analysis to the uh, analogy to the golden parachute, one of the things that you say about guys who are in too long, we're going to make it real easy for you to get out. Here's your $10 million, go home, and then the corporation under better management can earn a billion dollars. And, you know, something like that could actually happen here. So I don't think you want to be real confident in your prediction as to who's going to garner it. The second point is if these guys are at the top and they try to essentially keep all the money for themselves, it's not going to work. The political pressures on them will be enormous. And if you allow trade to come in, trade is a decentralizing influence. It's not like foreign aid. Somebody goes down and they want to buy a watch on the street, they're going to buy it for some private party. Somebody opens up an Airbnb apartment, the rent is going to go to the landlord under these circumstances. Uh, somebody's going to go to a fancy restaurant, they're going to be busboys who are going to share in the take. Uh, so the point about having tourists come in is it's decentralized sources of revenues and opportunities for other people, unlike direct foreign aid, which does go to the government and produce all of these baleful consequences. So I think what the correct situation is, 
is by all means open up Cuba to all sorts of people, but don't decide to make them a foreign aid project where the money goes to the center where it's likely to be misappropriated in the way that you've indicated. In the recent discussion that you and I had about Iran, you said that President Obama has a real gift for getting the sequence of these kind of deals wrong, getting the, the substance wrong. He sort of gets played pretty regularly. Uh, based on what you've seen over the last few months in terms of how the U.S. is handling the relationship with with Cuba, uh, any fear that that's happening here? Any, any fear that the, the specific terms here may not work as much in America's interest as they maybe could have? Well, there are no ayatollahs in Cuba. Uh, what you do is you have an old guy, uh, Raul Castro, who's trying to hang on, if not for life, at least for comfort. Uh, we don't know who it is that's behind him. There's going to be a lot of political intrigue. Uh, but you're not negotiating nuclear weapons. You don't have a situation where the sequence between inspections on the one hand and the lifting of the sanctions on the other is going to be there. I mean, this is a walk in the park. And you can tell the difference. There's nobody in Congress, as far as I can tell, who's telling the president, this is just a terrible thing. We want to have some review over it. The treaty power gives the Senate a role to vote on this particular issue. I would say the heat on the Castro issue and the Cuba issue is about one one thousandth of what it is on the other issue. And there are many people, myself included, who will start to shift sides uh, between these two kinds of arrangements. I mean, as I said last time, we talked about this on Iran, is that you never want to negotiate with somebody who thinks that the 11th hour surprise is a move which should be met with further concessions from the other guys. Well, they did it just before the treaty was signed, so-called, not treaty signed, but the initial understanding and at the end of March, and they're doing it again. And so I think the only thing you can do in the Iranian situation is says we're just not going to negotiate with you. Why do you say that? Because when you say you're not negotiating, of course you're negotiating because you're always negotiating. I don't think there's anything like that going on in the Cuba-type situation. As I said, getting lots of Americans into Cuba and having them buy, having them explore, having them meet and talk with other people, having them leave behind various kinds of doodads, this is a revelation. Let me give you one kind of poignant anecdote. Um, years ago, I used to be in correspondence uh, with this scholar from some Cuban university who would ask me to send him reprints. The letters that I got came in envelopes which were one and a half inch by one and a half inch. And what he would do in the tiniest little print on a piece of paper, uh, which was about a half an inch or an inch and a half square is write the names of four articles that he would like to have sent. And so you send him 10. Well, I mean, what's this telling you about Cuba? University professors are rationing paper as though it's gold. And, you know, you start sending an American in there and somebody sees you open up a notepad and start writing. And if they're used to paper supplies that are being constricted, this is the strongest possible method for capitalism. Years ago, in 1961, I went to East Germany. And, you know, you could see the difference between East and West. And by God, the folks in the East saw what was going on in the West. Cuba's an island, so it's easy to keep it isolated. Getting a bunch of people in there with a little bit of ostentation you know, of conspicuous consumption strikes me as being a massive force for market liberalization. Trade beats aid every time in terms of what's going on. And to the extent that that's our policy, I'm all for it. All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.